Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had the Stephen James endorsement already our AT&T studios, Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there, they're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of HarperCollins. And the 2015 Carol Award for Debut Novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. This week, I'm going to read to you from the Gut Check Guide to Publishing once again, a book by myself and Ted Kluck subtitled What Works, What Doesn't, and Why to Do It Your Way. You can probably guess that Ted, who was recently listed as number 125 in Jared C. Wilson's 125 Top Influencers in the Gospel-Driven Movement, supplies most of the what works, while I bring an inordinately large amount of the what doesn't. The foreword is by Chaz Marriott, that I'm going to skip. I'm going to read from the first couple chapters. Now, the first half of this book is about indie, how to navigate indie, um, what you can expect from indie, and the second half is about traditional, how and why to pursue traditional, how to navigate traditional once you've got your foot in the door. Also, no surprise that I don't write as much in the second half, and I certainly don't pen the section on how not to get thrown out of the party halfway through and your name removed from the list. So I'm going to read the first couple of passages. This is not an attempt to get you to buy the book, although you probably would find it useful if uh, publishing is something that you're interested in. Rather, I think it's just a nice overview of kind of where we stand and how things have shifted uh, in recent years when it comes to publishing. Chapter 1. Making Your Own Keys. Understanding the Brave New World of Publishing. When you spend a decade earning degrees in world religion and theology, you're often tempted to reference obscure ancient stories, legends about gods and spirits in which humans are often caught in the crossfire. One such story tells of a woman, a muse, who played a stringed instrument with such skill that kings and other powerful men would pay large sums of money just to listen to her. Life was going quite well for this woman until a malevolent demigod decided he would use her as a sort of channel to bring his master, a demonic overlord named Gozer, into this world. However, he could not do it alone. He needed to partner with another dark spirit, one who had taken on human form, in order to create a portal from the netherworld into the world of mortals. For his evil plan to succeed, this key master and gatekeeper had to come together to unlock the portal. At this point, you realize that I am, in fact, describing the plot of Ghostbusters, in which our heroes were hell-bent on keeping the gatekeeper and key master apart, whatever the cost. Apart, whatever the cost. What does this have to do with publishing, you ask? Everything. To understand the current situation vis-a-vis traditional and indie publishing and how this situation is changing, you first have to understand that it's all about gatekeepers. The term gatekeepers is one of those industry buzzwords that activates the ulcers of many aspiring authors. 
due to what they see as an evil conspiracy to keep their work from ever getting through the portal that connects the publishing world and the real world. Anyone who has received a form letter from a publishing house indicating that they, quote, do not accept unsolicited manuscripts can relate to this, as can anyone whose manuscript has languished interminably in an editor's slush pile. Literary agents are gatekeepers, and this has been the case for years and years. Without an agent, it is nearly impossible for an author to get the attention of an acquisitions editor, the next gatekeeper, at an established publishing house. Earnest attempts by authors to go full Ellis and sort of Hans booby their way past one of these gatekeepers usually end no better than Ellis's own attempt at smooth talking. Footnote, if you don't get this reference, pause this podcast, go watch Die Hard, and then listen to every episode of the Gut Check podcast. Seriously, do it. Yes, this means you, Ronnie Martin. When I was in seminary, I worked on the technical help desk of a now-defunct major Christian bookstore chain. My job was to tell people to reboot their computers and registers. Seriously, that was like 92% of my job. But occasionally, a self-published author would squeeze our 1-800 number out of a store employee and call us up, assuming that our magical help desk had the power to start stocking their book at our 300-plus stores. At the same time, my wife had recently begun working for a major Christian publisher, and her job involved fielding similar calls, often from people who insisted that God had told them her employer would be publishing their specfic novel or a collection of typo-ridden, heresy-heavy blog posts. We both told them the same thing. You have to go through the proper gatekeepers. On the retail end, it had to do with distribution. With a publisher, it had to do with representation and the sheer volume of submissions. In both cases, the gatekeepers were a necessity because of limited resources. That is to say, there's only so much shelf space in stores and so much room in book warehouses. And, of course, quality control. That is, only a small percentage of books that are written should be published and sold. And so, historically, if you trace a book backwards from the paper bag in the reader's hand through the retail book buyer's distributors, multiple departments of publishing houses, editors, and agents, the number of gatekeepers would grow at an overwhelming rate. And it can be overwhelming. Not to mention the gatekeepers involved in the major book review periodicals, newspapers, radio shows, etc., all of whom seem to be holding a large sword and declaring, You shall not pass! But wait, you may be thinking, isn't this all outdated information? After all, the internet is now filled with blogs, podcasts, and self-published books declaring the age of the gatekeepers to be over. With the advent of print-on-demand technology, e-books, the digital marketplace, and the indie movement, these dinosaurs are in the process of lying down to die, we're told. And by the time they become fossil fuels, we'll all have flying cars powered by happiness. So what's the point? To shift metaphors sans clutch, many of the champions of indie publishing, champions here meaning people who enthusiastically promote something, not necessarily people who are incredibly successful at it, see the process of querying agents, writing book proposals, and pitching books to publishers as the equivalent of securing a primo cabin on the Titanic as it slowly but inevitably sinks. After all, in the age of Amazon, smash words, and all the rest, there is no limit to the amount of shelf space available, and, in theory, every book has an equal share of that digital shelf. But is this really true? To get your mind around the current publishing climate, both indie and traditional, we've got to learn where the gatekeepers still exist, how to work with them, when and how you can make your own keys to unlock your options, and where you can cut your own path to avoid the gate altogether. 
This book will attempt to guide you as you navigate that process. And the first thing we need to do is look at the rocky, restraining order-filled history of the relationship between indie and traditional publishing. Chapter 2. The Evolution of Indie. From Albatross Necklace to Hipster Tattoo. If traditional and indie publishing, as entities, had Facebook pages, they would officially be in a relationship with each other, and that relationship would be labeled, It's Complicated. Furthermore, indie would have a lock of traditional's hair, obtained surreptitiously years and years ago while traditional was sleeping, stashed in a little rosewood box he made in shop class as a teen, along with one of traditional's scrunchies, because it smells like her. It is, indeed, complicated. And, of course, weird and a little sad. Still, when Indy says, I'm totally over her, there's a lot of truth to that. For Traditional's part, while she has blocked Indy's number from her cell phone, she hasn't blocked him on any social media platforms, because she's semi-obsessed with where he is at any given moment, what he's doing, and, most importantly, how much money he's making. As with any relationship, though, the history is everything. Let's look at how we got to where we are today. There was a time, not long ago, when authors had very few options. If they were serious about getting published, they needed to sign a book deal, preferably with one of the big New York publishers. If their book sold well, it might come out in paperback, and maybe even wind up on the spinners and airports and grocery stores, at which point they had it made. To do this, they needed to go through the ordained process, involving an agent, a contract, an advance, etc. To some degree, this process remains unaltered. And despite the rapidly changing face of publishing, it still works for the most part. Both Ted and I have had agents and have signed contracts, gone through the editorial process multiple times, received advances, and been depressed by royalty statements. But there have always been those who questioned the official path to publishing. Some questioned it because they couldn't seem to get their foot in the door of the published authors club, whether because their work wasn't good enough or because it was brilliant but didn't pass muster with the sales guys and their feasibility studies. Others questioned it simply because that's just who they are. Instead of asking, how do I get my book out there? They asked, but why? And is this really the best way? To the latter question, the answer was a resounding yes for most of publishing history, because the alternatives to the standard process were the equivalent of printing out your own degree and calling yourself a professor. These alternatives included. Number one, self-publishing. In the past, if an author wanted his book in print but was unwilling or unable to go through the gatekeepers, one option was to put it out himself. This involved hiring a typesetter and a cover designer, hopefully contracting a freelance editor, and paying a printer to go through the whole process of creating the plates and printing and binding hundreds or thousands of copies of the book. Any fewer, and the initial setup costs would render the per-book price absurdly high. The result was generally pallets full of worthless paperbacks and a crippling credit card balance. And unless the author was an in-demand speaker or had some other built-in platform for selling large quantities, she would likely exhaust her family and friends quite quickly and then wonder how to get this glue-and-paper monument to bad decision-making out of her garage. Number 2. Vanity or Subsidy Press for many, the above seemed like too much work, which is where vanity presses stepped in with their little magazine ads, making promises all over the place. Want to see your book in print? Work with us. Reasonable rates. The two or three biggest vanity presses were well known in the industry for overcharging authors and itemizing every little thing into the total. For example, $150 to file a copyright, $1,200 for design, $3,000 for marketing, although no one's sure what that was, resulting in the very opposite of a legitimate publishing contract. 
That is, the author paid the publisher a huge sum rather than the other way around. In 99% of cases, the result was again a garage full of books and even more money down the drain. What's more, both of these options created a black mark against the author, making it all the less likely that he could later get a book published traditionally. But things have changed. Technological advances have opened a number of additional pathways which, taken together, comprise the modern indie publishing landscape. These include number 1. Vanity Presses Again, These are still to be avoided like a kale-based smoothie with a shot of noggin, but with the advance of POD, or print-on-demand, authors no longer have to buy a garage full of books, although they'll still sell you one if they can. Regardless, these companies continue to overcharge and underdeliver. There are apparently many baby boomers who don't realize that paying someone $200 to list your book on Amazon doesn't make sense. As a more tech-savvy generation comes up, let's hope these predatory companies go the way of Prodigy and Blockbuster. Aside, gosh, I miss Blockbuster. Number two, Copubs. While the original vanity presses are quickly adapting to the times, some traditional publishers are filling the void left by the old model. It is no longer uncommon for a publishing house to create a self-publishing imprint, which is basically just a vanity press by any other name, under the otherwise trustworthy umbrella of the company. They will offer to, quote, split the cost of publishing your book with you, the author, meaning you pay thousands of dollars and they do a stripped-down version of their normal process. I once heard with my own two ears a representative of one of these outfits explain that, while the author has to pay the, quote, publisher thousands of dollars, she still gets an advance. How much? A hundred dollars. He explained that the reason for this is so that when your friend asks if you got an advance, you can say, yes, but I'm not at liberty to tell you how much. If this sounds completely slimy, that's because it is. 3. POD Self-Publishing Platforms The advent of print-on-demand removed one of the greatest obstacles to affordable self-publishing, the large print run and associated cost. No longer does the printing of a book need to involve the setting of plates and churning out of copies on the unfounded assumption that someone will want to buy them. If you print them, they will come. Now, books can be printed one or ten at a time, as they're ordered. Companies like Lulu and Book Surge, which later became CreateSpace, opened up a whole new world to authors, making it relatively easy to upload digital files, approve a proof, and make your work available to a potentially unlimited customer base without paying a huge sum up front, or at all. By removing much of the risk, indie publishing suddenly became a viable option for everyone, regardless of the size of their bank account or garage. There were downsides to this shift, of course. The most obvious was the tidal wave of low-quality crap that came crashing down on us. By making it possible to conceive of a book at 9am on Monday and have it available on Wednesday, they paved the way for subliterate junk with pixelated Windows Paint covers to saturate the marketplace. This hurt the cause of the true indie author more than anything else by creating the public perception that it's all amateurish junk and to be avoided. This went hand-in-hand with the other downside. These companies initially all listed their own name as the book's publisher, meaning your POD book was all the more associated with the glut of ill-conceived drivel out there. However, most of these companies have since allowed the author to list his own imprint name as the publisher, thus establishing his own brand standards and reputation. At this point, I'd probably update that to say all of these companies allow for that. 4. Hiring a Printer Again, POD has made this once disastrous option rather attractive. Printers like Lightning Source partner with small presses and individual authors alike to print books as needed. 
What's more, Lightning Source is owned by Ingram, one of the largest book distributors, making it easy for any bookstore to order your titles. They have a small setup fee, a low per-page printing cost, and a nominal yearly fee to keep your book listed. The downside here is that, unlike the above self-publishing platforms, which are very user-friendly, POD printers require quite a bit of technical skill and knowledge. Still, while the learning curve may be steep, it can be worth the homework. A little update there. Ingram now has their own service, Ingram Spark, which is kind of their version of CreateSpace or Lulu. And it's more difficult than either of those, but far easier than working with Lightning Source directly. So there's yet another option in there. 5. Ebooks. Authors looking for a simpler route may want to remove printing from the picture altogether. Preparing and submitting books to KDP, Amazon's ebook publishing interface, Barnes & Noble's Nook Press, Smashwords, or other ebook platforms is relatively painless compared to prepping a print book with its bleeds and gutters and pagination, and the author keeps as much as 70%, sometimes even more, of the price of the book. But perhaps the most significant change is that today, self-publishing can actually help an author get a traditional contract. If you can show an editor that you are building a sizable readership with quality content, it will be anything but the heavy demerit self-publishing used to be. This all brings us full circle to the question of gatekeepers. Is it true that the days of agents and traditional publishers are coming to an end? Has the internet been the great equalizer in giving each book the same space on the digital shelf? The answer is not even close. When a blogger shrilly declares, everything has changed, you no longer need an agent or a publishing contract because of the internet, the digital marketplace, and the indie book movement, it's basically like a garage band frontman shouting, if you want to be the next big hip-hop artist or pop singer, you don't need an agent, you don't need a record deal with a major label because nobody buys records anymore. But we all know that's bogus. And we all know why. Sure, all the available books are, quote, on the shelf together at the online bookseller's site, but to push the former analogy, all the available songs are on the same shelf on iTunes, and yet even the really good local bands are obscured by the major label stars. Why? Because gatekeepers exist in the music world as well. An indie artist might be selling 50 amazing songs on iTunes and getting great reviews, and yet when you open the app or the program, it'll never be her picture on the front page. Likewise, the fact that all 7 million books on Amazon, or almost as many on barnesandnoble.com, have the same sort of page, that is, the same shelf space, just means that your indie book will blend in and disappear unless you do something to make it jump out and bite readers. Beyond that, the product is simply better when a team of professionals has worked on it for a year. The cover is better. The layout is better. The actual text is better. Take, for example, my books 42 Months Dry and The Last Con. They both took about the same amount of time to write, but after banging out the former, I sent the manuscript to a couple friends for feedback and then immediately put it out on the Gut Check imprint. This was back in 2010. The latter was published by HarperCollins Christian Fiction a process involving a macro edit, that is, two seasoned professional editors talking through story issues, flow, consistency, weaknesses, etc. with me and helping to make it a stronger story. A line edit, that is, stuff like, you used the word somewhat three times in two paragraphs here, proofreading, etc. Granted, the initial manuscript was far stronger than 42 Months Dry, but the amount of growth and tightening up during the editorial process made me wonder just how good 42 could have been had it been given the same treatment. Footnote, one of the perks of indie is that I may find out soon. Unlike photoshopped models or overproduced music, it's hard to imagine a, quote, 
overproduced book. Sure, sometimes you can tell a screenplay was written by a committee of formula-worshipping hacks, and yeah, a bad editor can shave all the sharp edges from really fresh writing and leave it sounding just like everything else, but most of the time, the reason these people have gotten where they are is because they're good at what they do. That's the end of Chapter 2. I'm going to pick up there and read a little more next week, starting with Punk Rock Publishing, When and Why to Go Indie. And Gut Check Your Goals, Six Stupid Reasons to Go Indie. So that's again from the Gut Check Guide to Publishing. If you're interested in that, you can find that on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. But for now, let's get back to Trenton Marsh and Judith Morgan as they prepare to head back to the little town of Clinch Rock. Clinch, a novel, chapter 25. Trent ejected the magazine from the 9mm and threw it off into the distance. He then removed the slide and chucked it in the opposite direction. What remained of the gun he tossed into a patch of poison ivy a few feet away. I still think this is stupid, he said. Brian Green is out there, along with Sean Taylor and this other guy, Mike, from camp. They all have guns. I know, Judith said. I sunk their boat. You what? She beamed. All it took was one shot from the old sling. Judith, I was on that boat! Oh, you're fine, she waved a hand. And you're welcome, by the way. We better get going. I stashed the iron horse about a quarter mile from here. Trent followed her into the woods. A series of strategically snapped twigs and branches marked the way back. As he trudged, Trent found himself turning the same question over and over in his mind. Was Zoe really in danger? When Brian had referred to Trent's girlfriend, saying that she couldn't have gotten far, he was talking about the masked girl who had just crippled his boat, right? He meant that Judith was his girlfriend. Trent felt the flapping of myriad butterfly wings where the ferret had once called home. Wonky timing, but undeniable. His girlfriend. Jason had long known. Even Brian had somehow known. Funny how Trent was the last one to the party. But Barton had used the word, too. If you ever want to see your girlfriend alive, and he must have meant Zoe. Was it just an idle threat, or had they found her after all? So what I think we should do next, Judith said, jerking him back to the moment, is work our way to the center of the conspiracy. Maybe start with Fisher, then those two new cops, all the way up to the mayor if we have to. She planted a hand on a massive fallen log and swung her legs over effortlessly. But no, Trent said. We know what they want, the diary. And now Barton knows where to find it. We need to get there first. The guy's chained to a tree, though. For now, but who's to say Sean or one of those other guys won't stumble upon him and cut him loose? We need to go grab the diary while we can. It's our only bargaining chip. Judith stopped hiking and turned to face him. Bargaining? What are you talking about? They've got Zoe. We get the diary and we offer to trade her for it. Judith smiled. I like where your head's at, Marsh. We lure them in with the promise of a trade, and then we spring... No, I'm serious. I know you don't like Zoe. I'm not crazy about her either. She lied to all of us, but she's a victim in this. Not so sure about that, Judith mumbled. Either way, we want leverage, right? Yeah, I guess, she conceded. So we get the diary and we figure out why they want it so badly they were willing to kill me for it, then we stash it somewhere, and we've got the upper hand. 
Hmm. What about your dad? Is it time to loop him in? Trent leaned against a smaller pine and scratched a bunch of new mosquito bites on his leg. If he was honest, he'd been avoiding this very question with the endless analyses of his little love triangle. I'm not sure, he said. He's in no condition to rush back into the fight. Then again, they're supposed to discharge him tomorrow. Barton's guys will probably be waiting for him. Heck, I wouldn't be surprised if he's planning on Barton giving him a ride home. Oh, this will be over by tomorrow, Judith said. She pulled her cell phone from a compartment on her belt. I'll send him a text, warn him to watch his back. Her thumbs flew over the screen for a few seconds before she snapped the phone back into its pouch. Okay, my bike's just up here. Hold up, Trent said. You know my dad. After all the crap we've pulled in the past few days, you really think he's just going to stay put because you told him to? He decided not to add, besides, he sort of thinks you're a few tacos short of a combo plate. Judith twisted her lips up in thought for a moment, and Trent commanded the butterflies to stand down. I've got it, she said, pulling Barton's phone from her boot. Watch your back, chief, she said as she typed. We're coming for you. She punched send. There, that should keep him on guard. Chief Marsh's phone buzzed on Cash's desk, where it sat a few inches from the cop's feet. He was leaning back in his desk chair, watching an old Charles Bronson movie on an ancient tube TV. Behind him, Jesse Finn busied himself with paperwork at his own desk. The phone buzzed again. Can you please see who that is? Adam asked. He'd been pacing in the holding cell for more than an hour without a peep. I'm not giving you your phone, Cash said, his eyes glued to the TV. You think I'm stupid? I didn't ask you to. I'm worried about my son, okay? Can you just tell me if the messages are from him? Jesse, help me out here. Cash leaned forward and grabbed the device with his sausage fingers. What's your unlock code? Adam hesitated. You want to hear the messages or not? It's 1998, Jesse said. Everyone knows that. Adam gave the bars an angry shake. Jesse, what are you doing? Calm down, Marsh, Cash said, punching in the pin. Let's see here. We got a message from Judy Bug. That the little brat who went all Barry Bonds on Fisher the other day? Adam collapsed onto the long wooden bench at the back of the cell and studied the floor. Don't trust Barton, Cash read. He's not who you think he is. He raised his eyebrows and continued, Or Tango and Cash! He laughed, amused. Smart kid! A little late, though. Oh, and you got a message here from the new chief. He thumbed it open. Watch your back, Marsh, he read. We're coming for you. What the heck? Barton didn't write this. How'd this kid get a hold of the chief's phone? Adam smirked, but said nothing. He thought of the many wrestling meets he'd gone to the year before and how each and every opponent had underestimated Judith, sauntering up all cocky before slinking away humiliated, having been pinned by a girl. Eh, forget it, Cash said. I'll find her and I'll ask her myself. You like that idea? Jesse, how long have you known me? Adam asked, quietly. Years, came the response. That's right, years. Now let me out of here. That's an order. Jesse dropped his pen, but didn't look in the chief's direction. I've already got my orders, Adam. You're the one who tagged Barton as the next police chief. You're the one who told us to call him Chief Barton. Treat him as chief. Follow his orders. And now he claims to have evidence you killed Ed Piper. So it's on you when there's protocol I have to follow. 
But you know me, Jesse. Do you really believe I would kill someone? Just following the chain of command, Jesse answered, resuming his paperwork. Maybe if I'd been promoted to chief, I could come to my own conclusions. Judith pulled away the pile of brush from her motorbike. Hope you don't mind the girlfriend's seat. She threw her leg over the bike. Hop on. Judith, wait. Trent knew this was laughably bad timing for what he had to say, but his urgency to get out of here was more than matched by his urgency to clear the air, for the two of them to ride back into Clinch Rock with nothing hanging between them. What? she asked, her foot hovering over the kickstart. Just, I never really apologized about the other day, the stuff I said. She narrowed her eyes. No, you didn't. Well, I'm so- Later. She patted the seat behind her. Let's go. Fine. Trent mounted the bike and wrapped his arms around her. Just don't try to kiss me again until you've groveled a little. She looked back and winked at him, her glittery blue eyeshadow sparkling in the sunlight. Okay, Trent chuckled. You look really pretty, by the way. Her response was lost in the roar of the engine. They off-roaded their way to the pavement, where Judith opened it up. They made good time on the mostly deserted state highway, passing exactly six fellow motorists, all of whom gawked and stared at the iron horse and its riders. Trent couldn't blame them. They must have been a sight to behold. At one point, as they passed the trailer of a fuel transport, he caught their reflection. It was surreal. A masked woman with blue hair and her trusty sidekick packing a bow and arrows. For a minute, he envisioned the generic cartoon superhero from the cover of Judith's book flying alongside them. A block from the church, Judith killed the engine and coasted up beneath a broad, old, weeping willow in the church's north lawn. The light was just starting to go orange in the west as they dismounted and peeked out from behind the thick foliage. Nobody parked out front, Trent observed. Think we're clear. Give it another minute, Judith said. Something doesn't feel right. As they waited, Trent heard only the thudding of his heart, timed perfectly with Judith's even breaths. She seemed just about satisfied that the coast was clear when a man came lumbering around the corner from the rear of the building. He moved slowly, deliberately, his eyes darting this way and that. Fisher, Judith hissed. The big bald coach pulled back his Hawaiian shirt just long enough to adjust the thirty-eight stuffed into the waist of his pants, undoubtedly digging into his flab. Judith cracked her knuckles. Round two, she said, under her breath. Trent grabbed her gloved hand around the wrist and pulled her back. Let me go, Trent. Come on, Judith. Quick and quiet should be our goal. I've got my dad's master key. There's no need to fight. You don't think I can take him? Judith demanded. I'm sure you can, but why take the chance? I mean, is this about revenge? Is that what we're doing here? Judith mulled this over, watching Fisher approach the front of the building. No, you're right. She locked her eyes onto the coach as he disappeared around the corner. I forgive you, she said quietly. Then to Trent. By the way, just so you know, the only reason I've got this much eye makeup on is to cover up the shiner he gave me. It was a dead giveaway. Right, Trent laughed. Let's move. He led the way to the church's side entrance, slid his dad's key into the lock, and then held the door like a gentleman. They stayed low through the dark halls to the pastor's study. Once inside, Trent double-checked that the door was locked before reaching back behind the row of thick tomes where he'd stashed the antique book. His hand searched for a few uncertain seconds before closing around the leather cover.
He unwrapped the cord from the ancient book and flipped through it as if he could visually confirm that every word was still there. How much of that thing have you read? Judith asked. Maybe 15%, starting from the back. She was peering over his shoulder as he absentmindedly turned the old pages. Obviously, there's something specific Brian needs here, he said. Some kind of giveaway for the location of the cash hoard, but it would take forever to read the whole thing. Let me see it. Trent handed the book to her and leaned back against his dad's desk. Let's think through it backwards, he said. Brian and his guys don't know what we know, that the treasure is beneath the fire. If they did, they wouldn't be looking in the walls and under the floorboards. Right, Judith said, because we're the only ones who've seen Cassell's letter from the desk. But they have other letters, dozens of them, maybe hundreds. I read quite a few myself. Trent closed his eyes and tried to remember the specifics. It was no use. He hadn't been trying to build the scaffolding of a vast mystery that morning. He'd just been looking for a fascinating paragraph or two to showcase in the display. Wait! he shouted in a whisper. The display! We were looking for three letters from Walcott to Cassell, but there was already a letter mounted there to Walcott, still in the envelope, but not sealed, sort of peeking out. Yeah, I got no idea what you're talking about, Judith said. They found all those letters up in the attic of the Cassell house. Why would Cassell have a letter that he wrote to someone else? I guess he never sent it. Exactly. In our letter, the one from the desk, Cassell said that after he left town, he'd follow up with the final piece of the puzzle. What if he wrote a letter to Walcott, but he was killed before he had a chance to send it? And what better place to hide something like that than right out in the open, locked right between two thick pieces of safety glass in the form of an insanely boring museum display? No one would give it a second look. Judith shook her head. If Team Brian had a note that told them right where to find the treasure, they'd just go get it. It wouldn't tell the exact location. The guy was paranoid, remember? He was dropping a series of hints. The first one was beneath the fire. The final one was supposed to come by post within a week. It never got there. And who knows how many more hints are in there? He pointed at the diary in her hands. Judith pulled her long blue costume gloves back up to her elbows. I guess we need to have a look at that letter. Don't suppose Zoe gave you a key to her place? No, Trenton said, but I've got something better. They first scoped out the Cassell house, ditching the bike down the road and picking their way through the wooded property around the mansion. The place was dark inside, save for one light in the entryway, but out front, in the circle drive, Sean Taylor sat on the hood of his 1987 Firebird, a rifle in his hands. Man, what happened to that guy? Judith asked. I rode him down the devil's tail like a sled, and then I shot him in the foot with an arrow. Judith smiled. I changed my mind about you. You can be my sidekick. Hard pass. Sean eased himself off the car and began a pained, limping circuit of the house. This should be pretty easy, Trent breathed. We stash your bike in my garage, come up from the tunnel, grab the letter, and disappear back to my place. I love it, Judith said, but remember, head on a swivel. They walked her bike the long way around, toward Trent's house, not wanting to attract any more attention than was necessary. The sun was just dipping below the horizon, and the streetlights had not yet come on, allowing them to glide unnoticed through the twilight. You really think she's innocent in all this? Judith asked as they turned onto Trenton Street. What? Who's innocent? 
Zoe, duh. Trent thought for a moment. Not completely, but definitely in over her head. Anyway, superheroes have to rescue everyone, right? Not just people who are completely innocent. Judith stopped two houses short of the parsonage. Whose car is that? She asked. There, on the street. A ridiculously detailed purple Escalade was parked right in front of the Marsh house, bearing the vanity plate sleeved up. Oh, that's Connor. What's his name? He owns the tattoo and piercing place by the old grain elevator. You've seen him. Big, mean-looking dude. All that hardware in his face. All at once, Trent could see the four men walking away from the home store that morning, only from the front, falling into place like the solution to a higher math problem previously thought unsolvable. He saw them left to right. Officer Cash, Connor the tattoo guy, Coach Fisher, and Sean Taylor. Their combined strength overwhelmed him. He and Judith may have had some lucky breaks, combined with some strategic victories, but enough thick-necked brutes would cancel that all out. What do you want to do? he asked. Judith dumped her bike against some hedges and creeped up into Trent's neighbor's yard, ducking down behind a yew bush. I think he's up on the porch, maybe. If I can spot him, I think I can knock him out. She retrieved the sling from her boot. Are you nuts? You could kill him. And even if you don't, you could shoot his eye out. Really? I'll shoot his eye out? You know what I mean. Well, I'm open to suggestions, she said. Look, all we need is someone to draw him away from the house for a minute so we can slip in the back and go down to my room. Someone who'd have a good reason to be here, wouldn't raise suspicion. No, Judith said. Tell me you're not thinking what I think you're thinking. Yeah. Trenton said, we need Jason. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel. Copyright 2017, Gutcheck Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, like God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Gut 